0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I've had the Dreyfus affair on my to do list for really quite a while. And it finally made its way up to the top after we mentioned it in our episode on Esperanto not that long ago. This incident comes up a lot as a really notable example of anti-Semitism in France around the turn of the 20th century, and it definitely is that. But it's also, that's one piece of a story that connects to a lot of other stuff, including the role of the media and the spread of articles and imagery that we would describe as viral today, uh, and questions about like the relationship between individual liberties and national security. This is definitely not a zero sum situation. None of that stuff takes away from the role of antisemitism in all of this, but it adds more layers to it. Uh, France had also been through a lot over the decades before this happened, and a lot of what France had gone through really fed into this scandal and the response from the French government and the military and the civilian population. And that is one of the reasons why this episode stretched into two parts. In this first part, we're going to contextualize all of this with a discussion of the Franco-Prussian War, which is also called the Franco-German War, and the founding of the French Third Republic. Then we'll move from there on to Alfred Dreyfus, which you, a lot of English speakers would say that Dreyfus, but he said it Dreyfus. Uh, And we will get into the accusation of treason that he faced in 1894. And then in the second part of this two-parter, we'll talk about his court-martial and his exile and how all of that blossomed into something that was just known as the affair, uh, which divided French society and became international news.
0: So as Tracy just noted, the Franco-Prussian War was one of the events that set the stage for the Dreyfus Affair, and it also directly and profoundly affected the Dreyfus family, and we'll get into that later in the episode. In 1870, Napoleon Louis, also known as Napoleon III, was emperor of the French. He was the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. And in June of that year, Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck convinced Prince Leopold of Hohenzollern-Sigmarten to make a claim to the Spanish throne. At this
1: point, Spain did not have a monarch. Queen Isabella II had been deposed in the Revolution of 1868, and Spanish military leader Juan Prim was acting as prime minister. He supported Leopold's claim to the throne, and France found this enormously threatening. Leopold was Prussian, and the House of Hohenzollern was the ruling house of Brandenburg, Prussia. So if Leopold became king of Spain, France was going to be basically
0: sandwiched between two nations that could easily ally against it. French ambassador Vincent Benedetti successfully negotiated with Prussia to get Leopold to withdraw his claim. But he also demanded that Prussia never allow Leopold to be put forth as a claimant to the Spanish throne again. King Wilhelm of Prussia sent a telegram to Otto von Bismarck that outlined all of this. Bismarck edited this telegram to make it seem as though France had deeply insulted Prussia and then published it basically attempting to goad France into declaring war. And this worked. Napoleon III's military
1: advisors thought that France was equipped to defeat Prussia without a lot of difficulty. And so France declared war on July 19, 1870. But then several other German states allied with Prussia, and together their armies vastly outnumbered the French military force These newly unified German states under the helm of the Prussian army were way more efficient and better coordinated than France's force was when it came to actually deploying the troops.
0: So, unsurprisingly, this went incredibly poorly for France. Napoleon hoped to be killed at the Battle of Sedan on August 31st. He survived, he surrendered, and he was deposed on September 4th, at which point the government announced the establishment of the Third Republic. But this new government refused to accept Germany's conditions to end the war, so Germany lay siege to Paris beginning on September 19, 1870.
1: Paris was under siege from then until January of 1871. The German forces cut off the city's food supplies and people started to starve. They also ran out of fuel, and this was the winter. Eventually, the German army started shelling the city, and when Paris finally surrendered on January 28th, A lot of the people who were living there, especially the working class and the poor who had been affected the most by this siege, they felt abandoned and betrayed. There had been almost 50,000 civilian casualties during the siege, and the people who lived through it had survived months and months of just incredible hardship.
0: This compounded existing unresolved frustrations and divisions in Paris and in France as a whole. Many people in France's more rural regions were royalists, and consequently royalists held a majority of seats in the newly established National Assembly. Conservative Adolphe Thiers was heading the assembly, which was meeting at Versailles, further reinforcing fears about the possibility of the restoration of the monarchy among the people who did not want that to happen. In
1: the face of a potential uprising in Paris, Thiers ordered the National Guard that had defended Paris during the siege to be disarmed. And when troops started removing cannons that had been placed around Montmartre to defend the city, people started fighting back.
0: Paris formed its own rival government, the Paris Commune, and that formed on March 18, 1871. Its leaders included anarchists, socialists, communists, and Jacobins, united in their opposition to what they saw as a conservative royalist assembly. Similar rebellions followed in other cities around France, but those quickly fell apart or were suppressed. But Paris held municipal elections, and the Communards tried to implement a whole series of reforms, including limiting the power of the Catholic Church, protecting the rights and pay of workers, ending child labor, and expanding rights for women. On May
1: 21st, Thiers dispatched troops and volunteers from the country to put down this uprising, and this led to the deaths of 20,000 Parisians and about 750 government troops. There were also tens of thousands of arrests, thousands of people were deported. In response, people set fire to multiple buildings in Paris, including the Tuileries Palace.
0: By the end of the Paris Commune, France had also formalized its peace with Germany through the Treaty of Frankfurt. Germany took control of Alsace and part of Lorraine, which had previously been French territory. France also had to pay an indemnity of 5 billion francs, along with other costs, and that left the country deeply in debt. And on January 18, 1871, King Wilhelm I of Prussia was named Emperor of Germany, with that taking place at Versailles. So this was all financially disastrous and just humiliating for France, while also unifying multiple German states into one nation, which had been Otto von Bismarck's intent from the beginning.
1: Over the next few years, France really tried to recover from all this. The National Assembly passed a collection of laws in 1875 that together essentially formed a new constitution for the Third Republic. It established a bicameral legislature with a Senate that was elected every nine years by mayors and counselors, and the Chamber of Deputies that was elected every four years by male citizens. And at first, monarchists held the majority in this new assembly, but Republicans eventually came to power. And then, of course, the response to that shift in who was holding seats in these bodies, like, the response to that depended on which side you were on between the monarchists and the Republicans.
0: Even as the Republican government got onto more solid footing, there were still a lot of unresolved tensions and divisions that were lingering after the war, the siege, and the Paris Commune. Between Republicans and monarchists, between Paris and the provinces, between the church and the secular community, these conflicts sort of just went on and on.
1: In the 1870s and 1880s, the French government passed a series of laws and reforms that were meant to try to unify the people of France and to repair some of the ongoing divisions that had both contributed to and grown out of all of this. In 1881, a law replaced a collection of earlier laws that related to free speech and freedom of the press. It generally expanded on those freedoms. This, combined with public education reforms, increased literacy, and new printing technologies, and it led to a proliferation of newspapers that were widely read and widely distributed all through the country. This expansion of the French media would go on to play a huge role in the Dreyfus Affair.
0: During these years, the French government also passed new laws related to civil liberties and freedoms and the relationship between the church and the state. Many of these new laws were anti-clerical in nature and reduced the power of the church. But at this point, the church and the state were still formally connected. France also extended its colonial empire into Africa and Asia.
1: But while the government was trying to take some steps to try to stabilize things and recover from just a long period of strife and hardship, France also went through several scandals during the late 1880s and early 1890s. We're not going to talk about all of them, but a couple in particular both grew out of and fed into anti-Semitism in France, and then that all also fed into the Dreyfus Affair, and we're going to get to that after a quick sponsor break. Toward the end of the 19th century, a lot of different groups of people with different ideologies thought that France was in immediate peril, but often for totally contradictory reasons. Republicans feared a restoration of the monarchy. Monarchists feared a growing support for the Republican government. Catholics feared the erosion of the church's power and this rise of anti-clerical laws. People in the country, feared the influence of Parisians in the Chamber of Deputies, but people in the cities feared the influence of rural interests in the French Senate. This, again, went on and on. Anti-Semitism both fed into and grew out of all of these fears and was connected to a number of major scandals and crises that unfolded during these decades.
0: One involved Gen- General Georges-Ernest Jean-Brie Boulanger, who served as Minister of War under Prime Minister René Goblet. Because of his military position, it was illegal for Boulanger to run for office, but he did it anyway. In some circles, he was imagined as sort of a potential successor to Napoleon, an authoritarian figure who might supplant the Republican government, restore the monarchy, take back Alsace and Lorraine from Germany, and make Germany pay for the Franco-Prussian War. People were so sure that he was the man to do this that he was nicknamed General Revanche or General Revenge.
1: Boulanger also grew in popularity thanks to some other scandals. One became known as the Decorations Scandal of 1887, and this was a scheme to trade honors for money, including basically selling ranks in the French Legion of Honor. One of the people who was involved in this scheme was Daniel Wilson, who was the son-in-law of President Jules Greve. When Greve was forced to resign because of his son-in-law's involvement in this, it sparked even more popular support for Boulanger. And, like, I want to kind of just characterize this support a little bit. Um, he had supporters among a surprisingly wide array of people of different viewpoints. People were voting for him in elections where he wasn't even on the ballot And when the army transferred him out of Paris to try to just get him out of the way and cut him off from the support a little bit, people thronged the train station and physically blocked the train from leaving. And then when they finally cleared that away so that the train could go, they were chanting, he will return as he pulled away. It's intense. It is. In 1888,
0: Boulanger was dismissed from the army because of his political activities. With nothing legally prohibiting him from seeking office, he ramped up his political ambitions even further. People either feared or hoped that he might attempt a coup, particularly after he was elected to the Chamber of Deputies in 1889. His supporters were disappointed when this imagined coup did not materialize, and after the Chamber voted to strip him of his parliamentary immunity, he fled Paris. The Senate tried him for treason and convicted him in absentia, and he took his own life in 1891.
1: There was a lot of overlap between the people who supported Boulanger because they imagined that he was going to restore France to greatness and anti-Semites. The same newspapers that were printing a lot of pro-Boulanger propaganda were also printing anti-Jewish propaganda, including Boulanger propaganda that was itself anti-Semitic. Some of the places where this was happening had few, if any, Jewish people actually living there. So people were kind of constructing an imaginary enemy
0: to blame for every perceived ill and threat. At minimum, Boulanger seems to have been willing to use this to his own advantage. And after his death, the movement that had risen to support him became more and more explicitly anti-Semitic. This all merged together into a mass of nationalism, anti-Semitism, authoritarianism, militarism, and revenge against Germany.
1: And then there was the Panama Scandal of 1893, which came up very briefly in our previous episode on Gustave Eiffel. After raising huge amounts of money, including through a lottery that had been approved by the French government, the French Panama Canal Company went bankrupt The people who lost all of their investments in this included about half a million ordinary middle-class French citizens. There were also allegations that more than 150 members of the French parliament had taken bribes to cover up what was happening and to try to keep the Panama Canal Company afloat.
0: A parliamentary commission of inquiry was convened, and numerous members of the government were prosecuted or forced to resign during the investigations that followed. One of them was Emile Loubet, premier and minister of the interior. Investigations also revealed that the French Panama Canal Company had already been essentially bankrupt before its huge round of fundraising and the subsequent mismanagement of those funds.
1: None of the prominent investors involved in all of this were Jewish nor were any of the board of the French Panama Canal Company. But various people who had been involved in the bribery scheme or had acted as liaisons between the government and the Panama Canal Company were Jewish. This included Baron Jacques de Reinach and Cornelius Hers, who were both of German-Jewish descent. Anti-Semitic newspapers focused primarily on these two men in their coverage, even though they were just two figures in a massive scandal of mismanagement and deception.
0: In addition to the illegal and unethical activity going on, this reinforced anti-Semitic stereotypes and conspiracy theories. Anti-Semitic newspaper La Libre Parole, which was founded and edited by Edouard Drumont, framed all of this as a widespread Jewish conspiracy that involved banks and secret control of the government.
1: And this was further compounded by the existence and the activities of the Rothschild banking family, which was Europe's most famous banking dynasty and was also of German-Jewish descent. The Rothschild family had become quite powerful thanks to being able to make loans to nations and governments, and
0: this included two large loans that were issued to France in the wake of the Franco-Prussian War. In addition to the spread of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, this whole incident had a meaningful impact on France's most notorious anti-Semitic newspaper. Drumont had funded La Libre Parole using money from the sale of an anti-Semitic book that he had written called Jewish France. Its circulation remained fairly small until Baron Jacques de Reynac provided Drumont with a list of all of the members of Parliament that he said were involved. Reinach allegedly did this in exchange for the paper covering up his own involvement in the scandal in its reporting. And thanks to its publication of this list, La Libre Parole saw a massive increase in its circulation and its influence. Today,
1: historians often describe the French Third Republic as being relatively stable, but with some caveats. These two scandals are usually included in the caveats, along with the Dreyfus affair that we're going to discuss. The Republic also went through a series of fairly brief administrations between 1870, when it was established, and 1940, when France fell to Nazi Germany during World War II. The Chamber of Deputies was responsible for choosing the Ministry of France. And because there were so many different parties and divisions within the Chamber of Deputies, the ministries that they created often lasted for less than a year before being replaced. So when you read... Quick summaries of the French Third Republic. It's often summed up as stable in spite of a series of short-lived governments and a couple of major scandals.
0: (laughs) It's stable with air quotes. Right. (laughs) Uh, But as people were living through it, especially in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they did not feel stable at all. It felt unstable, and it often felt like it was on the precipice of disaster the general perception was that France had been deeply wronged during the Franco-Prussian War and needed not only its lost territory back, but also, as we've mentioned, revenge on Germany. And as we said earlier, people from all different political perspectives saw France as being in immediate, continual peril, with the media often hyping up that perceived peril through sensationalized and sometimes outright false reporting.
1: And all of that finally brings us back to Alfred Dreyfus and the scandal that further divided and already divided France. And We will get to that after a sponsor break. Alfred Dreyfus was born on October 9th, 1859 in Milouz, Alsace, which at the time was French territory. Although parts of Alsace had a lot of German influence, Milouz in particular was seen as like the most French of the cities. Uh, About 10% of the population of Milouz was also Jewish, including the Dreyfus
0: family. Alfred's parents were Raphael and Jeanette Dreyfus. Raphael was a merchant, dealing in various types of trade before eventually focusing on fabrics and buying a mill. And Jeanette was a seamstress, and the family was very comfortable. The Dreyfus family had slowly built up their wealth over several generations, transforming themselves from a family of peddlers to a prosperous group of employers, landowners, and business owners.
1: And they had also tried to assimilate with French society over the course of those generations. Raphael's generation had changed the spelling of the family's last name from D-R-E-Y-F-U-S-S with a diuresis over the Y to D-R-E-Y-F-U-S without that accent mark. Raphael and Jeanette's first languages were a Judeo-Alsatian dialect and German, but they gave their children French names like Jacques, Henriette, and Léon and they made sure that they all learned fluent French. Alfred was the youngest of seven surviving siblings, and he and his older brother, Mathieu, were the first ones in the family to learn French as their first language.
0: The Dreyfus family witnessed the Franco-Prussian War firsthand. German troops invaded Mulhouse, where they were living, conscripting vast amounts of supplies and threatening to sack the city if those demands were not met. The people of Melus also secretly sent the same amount of goods and supplies to the French army, which is sort of a a wonderful little detail in here. Uh, One of Alfred's older brothers also joined the Légion d'Alsace-Lorraine to fight against Germany during the war.
1: When the Treaty of Frankfurt ended the war on May 21st, 1871, France ceded most of Alsace and part of Lorraine to Germany. And this included Melus. And if the Dreyfus family... Continued living there, that would mean they would be considered German. But the Dreyfus's loyalty was to France. They considered themselves French. At the same time, there were also some practical considerations involved. Their home and their business were in Moulouse.
0: The Dreyfus family was still trying to decide what to do when Germany passed a conscription law that was going to force Alfred and some of his older brothers to serve in the German military. That really settled the matter. The family decided to move to French territory, leaving Alfred's oldest brother, Jacques, who was too old to be conscripted, to see to the family business. Alfred's mother also stayed behind at first because she was too ill to travel.
1: It was not military service in general that the Dreyfus family objected to. It was the idea of serving in an army that they felt was their enemy, which they had seen defeat the nation that they considered to be their own. Alfred ultimately decided that he did want a career in the French military based on what he had witnessed during the Franco-Prussian War and because he wanted his former home returned to France.
0: To that end, Alfred entered École Polytechnique in 1878, and he graduated in 1880. He decided to join the artillery, which required additional training and education. He was recommended for the École Supérieure de Guerre, which was a newly established school for officers, and he was described as being spirited with a lively intelligence and qualified to teach horsemanship.
1: Dreyfus taught mathematics and drafting while continuing his education, and while he was in the middle of all that, he also met his future wife, Lucy Hadamard. They got married in April of 1890, with a civil wedding on the 18th and a Jewish ceremony on the 21st. Alfred's army rank meant that there was a minimum dowry required for his marriage to be approved, but Lucy's family was even more wealthy and prominent than the Dreyfus family was, so this was not a problem. Rabbi Zadok Khan, the chief rabbi of France, presided over their wedding. Alfred and Lucy would go on to have two children, Pierre-Léon in 1891 and Jeune in 1893.
0: Dreyfus graduated from École Supérieure de Guerre in 1892. He ranked ninth out of 81 in his class. And that earned him a place in the French Army's general staff, which he joined in 1893. Thanks to his
1: officer's supplement, which was meant to offset the cost of living in Paris, and Lucy's income, and his own inheritance after his father's death in 1893, Alfred Dreyfus and the rest of the family lived very comfortably. They had an Alsatian wet nurse to care for the children, and Alfred indulged in his love of fine chocolates and cigars, and he had his uniforms specially tailored.
0: Alfred Dreyfus became the highest-ranking Jewish person in the French Army and the only Jew on staff at the French Army's general headquarters. And military reforms that had followed the Franco-Prussian War had really allowed this to happen— the military had become more of a meritocracy rather than an organization in which aristocrats automatically became officers regardless of their competence and performance. Not only in France, but also in other European countries, the army had also become an organization that was seen as a noble and patriotic pursuit rather than the last resort for people who had nothing in their family background or any skills to distinguish themselves. But
1: this shift in the French military also meant that Dreyfus didn't always fit in with his peers and with older officers. Especially in his younger years, he was known to visit nightclubs and racetracks from time to time. And before he'd met Lucy, he had had relationships with various women. He does seem to have been intensely devoted to her after he met her. But the culture, among many of the other officers, was more one of excessive drinking and debauchery and gambling, and none of that was really Dreyfus's thing. He could also be fairly aloof, and he was ambitious in his military career, which came off to people as being arrogant. His family wealth made him the target of envy as well. During his education, he had worked really hard in pretty austere circumstances, as did his classmates but a lot of them were just barely starting to make ends meet on their military salaries at this point in their career while Dreyfus had finished his education with financial comfort already waiting for him.
0: In September of 1894, the French Army's Counterintelligence Unit, which was known as the Statistics Section, retrieved a torn-up document from the wastebasket of Lieutenant Colonel Maximilian von Schwarzkoppen, the German military attaché. The statistics section was employing a cleaning woman who routinely delivered wastebasket contents for analysis. This document
1: is known as the Bordereau, and it referenced secret documents that someone in France was offering to sell to Germany. It's not totally clear whether this document actually passed through Schwarzkopf's hands. There's been some discussion about whether it was planted in the wastebasket already torn up, as part of an anti-Semitic plot to try to implicate Dreyfus and get him forced out of the army as a result.
0: To be absolutely clear from the outset, Alfred Dreyfus had nothing to do with this document and he had not tried to sell French secrets to Germany. He also had no motive at all for doing so. As we already discussed, his family had moved rather than becoming German citizens after the Franco-Prussian War. And his entire motivation for joining the military had been his French patriotism and his hope of Alsace being returned to France. Also, because he and his wife were both from affluent families, he didn't have the kind of debts or financial strains that might make a person desperate for money.
1: But based on the information contained in the bordereau. It seemed like it must have come from someone on the general staff. And because he still had family in Malouz and he visited them regularly, that raised suspicions. Dreyfus's Alsatian wet nurse also spoke German and had German visitors. Again, the army saw this as suspicious.
0: Rumors spread that Dreyfus was spending huge amounts of money on women in gambling. This was compounded by the fact that he'd briefly had a relationship with a woman while he was still a lieutenant a few years before. He apparently had not known that woman was married, and he had ended the relationship after her father told him that she was already married and actually had two small children. Later on, she had been murdered by another man she was seeing, and Dreyfus, along with several other men that she had previously been involved with, had all been called to testify at her murderer's trial. So this was just another tick against Dreyfus in this investigation.
1: All that said, though, the statistics section's evidence against Dreyfus was incredibly thin. A graphologist compared his handwriting to the Bordereau and found that the two were not similar. That the graphologist claimed that this dissimilarity was evidence that Dreyfus had created this document. The graphologist described this as a self-forgery. In other words, the big piece of evidence that was supposedly connecting Dreyfus to this document was the fact that it did not look like it was in his handwriting.
0: He concocted a whole other handwriting to cover his tracks. Uh, all of the stuff that we talked about in the first two-thirds of this episode meant that France was particularly primed to just believe that Alfred Dreyfus was guilty and that his guilt was a sign of a much greater crisis and a serious existential problem for the nation. He was Jewish. He was also from Alsace, and even though in his mind, that led directly to his love of France and his desire to serve in the French army, to other people... That meant that he was really German and loyal not to France, but to France's enemy, which had not only humiliated and devastated the French during the Franco-Prussian War, but had also stripped France of Alsace and Lorraine. And he was accused of selling military secrets to that enemy. Pretty much everyone who saw France as under threat in some way saw Dreyfus as emblematic of that threat, whichever direction they saw the threat as coming from.
1: Alfred Dreyfus fell under suspicion for selling French military secrets to Germany on October 6th, 1894. And we will get into his court-martial and what followed it in our next episode.
0: Bum 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 cliffhanger.
1: Yeah. When I started on this, I wasn't expecting it to be two parts, and then as it became two parts, I was like, this is a this is a place to have to end it, but like this is where it's gonna have
0: to break. <laughs> Uh, while we wait on tenterhooks for that next installment, do you also have listener mail? I do. Uh, this is from
1: Cassandra, or maybe Cassandra. It is about our recent episode on Lola Montez. Uh, is one of several notes we got along the same topic. And Cassandra has, says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. First off, I love your podcast and have been listening to it for the past few years. I just recently listened to the episode about Lola Montez. You kept mentioning how everyone said she was beautiful, so I decided to Google her. And when I plugged her name to Google, the song Lola Montez by Volbeat appeared. I've heard that song many times before. In fact, it's a liked song on my Spotify playlist, but honestly, I can't understand a word the lead singer is saying, so I just bob my head to the beat and enjoy the tune When I realized the title to this song, I looked up the lyrics, and it's basically a synopsis of your recent podcast. I thought this was so funny, as I've heard this song a million times and never knew what it was really about. Thanks for broadening my musical background, Cassandra. So thanks so much for writing this note. Uh, We heard from a lot of people who told us they were disappointed that we did not mention this. Um, that song is actually the background music in the Dickinson uh, story arc that we talked about a little bit in the episode and more in the behind the scenes about Lola Montez. And I just forgot to mention it. It is basically a song about Lola Montez. Uh, and I do also enjoy it. So thank you, Cassandra, for giving me the chance to to add that into the episode. Uh, if you'd like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show in the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you get your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.